Welcome to Acoustic Music Talk, where we explore the art of acoustic music and musicians with your host, Brad Apple. Well, hello, folks, and welcome to Acoustic Music Talk, the podcast. I am your host, Brad Apple, and we'd like to welcome each and every one of you. We have a great episode in store for you today. We have Mr. Butch Robbins joining us. And Butch played with the father of bluegrass music, Mr. Bill Munro himself. Uh, Butch did a couple of different stints with with Bill and the Bluegrass Boys. And after that, Butch uh, had his own band called the Bluegrass Band. They did some great recording. And also, uh, Butch has done a lot of great solo records through the years, as well as some special projects for uh, Hay Holler records back in the day and so we're very delighted to have butch robbins joining us today so let's get into that interview well butch welcome to the show uh thank you so much for uh joining us you know your career is one that i followed for a long time now and gosh you've had a quite a long career in playing the bluegrass and the banjo and wondered if you could start out by telling us uh, how you got started in music what drew you to the banjo and bluegrass and and all that stuff okay i'll look back through a half century fog and see if i can uh give you something of that nature i think i started playing the banjo just to get my dad's attention when he came back from the second world war he and two of his brothers got the guy uh, together with a guy named james davis and they all played music in a little band somewhere over around uh welsh west virginia and somehow or another, my dad drifted away from music. I guess part of it was because I busted his mandolin with a hammer sometime when I was three or four years old. And he just never got a, had another instrument around the house until I was almost a teenager. Yeah. And that instrument came around the house in the form of a guitar that that fellow James Davis had loaned my dad to work on his playing a little bit. So my dad had have an instrument around the house to pick. And he was looking for instruments for James's two sons, Charles and Tommy Davis. And he wanted one of them to play a dobro and the other to play a banjo. And my dad just got on this hunt. He finally found a dobro in a pawn shop in Spartanburg, South Carolina, um, one of the old national square necks. And the neck was broken out of it, so he repaired that and got that to James and was looking for a banjo. While the, he was looking for a banjo, the dobro was around the house, so I learned how to piddle around and play a couple of three tunes on that. And um, my dad, along, you know, thumping on the guitar. And it was just a way of being with my dad in a way that I hadn't before, is playing music. And, and somehow or another, we wound up... Um, seeing a couple of banjos, but James wound up buying uh, Charles a master tone, a 50s model master tone somewhere over in West Virginia. So a guy came in where I had my first job in a barber shop in Fletcher, North Carolina one Saturday, and we've been actively looking for a banjo, and this guy comes in and says, I heard you're looking for a banjo. I got one out in the car, and it was an old open back deal. Um my dad bought it for $2, brought it home, had to sew the head up with fishing line, but he sewed the head of it up, got a set of strings on it, and we found a couple of people that around in the area down there 
uh, settled on one guy named Homer Israel who knew how to make a real good three-finger roll and, uh, you know, show me how to tune the banjo and all that elementary stuff. And it just started from there. But it was it was a way of getting attention from my dad when I saw how interested he was in, in Tommy and Charles's interest in music and everything. I sort of went along with that game, and that's how it sort of happened. Okay. I guess uh, you probably... Well, in fact, in your book, um, you talk about going to Galax and places like that. I guess that was the next natural progression probably, right, as far as getting out to some of the yeah, Fiddler's yeah. Conventions and all? Yeah, and back then there were the Fiddler's Conventions, the contests. And I started one of those. I had. I don't think I've been playing much over a year when I played in the, um, I forget, it was... Hubert Hayes and Bascom Lamar Lunsford, each of those guys was active in the Asheville, North Carolina area in, in folk music and everything. Uh-huh. And one of them, I think it was Hubert Hayes, had the youth jamboree in the spring, and then Bascom Lamar Lunsford had the jamboree for the older folks, you know, in the fall. And I wound up playing in that, that one for the juniors one spring, and I won this little cup on that, something about a folk song or something that gave me an award for. And that was the first time that I'd won any contest. And then, especially after we moved out of North Carolina up here into Virginia, at that point I started uh, playing regularly at Galax and at Union Grove and some of the other festivals down around Eden, North Carolina, Pinnacle, North Carolina. And, again, those were... Not bluegrass festivals, they were fiddlers' conventions. They were contests. And I try to explain to people this whole deal about parking lot picking around the festivals started happening. Those were because of the professionals happening at places like Sunset Park and and some of the other, you know, places around. If Flat and Scrubs were playing Sunset Park, they'd come out and play a matinee show, and then they'd take an intermission a couple hours, you know, and the show would start again. Well, during that couple of hours, the wives would take the kids out to ride in the rides in the park, and the guys would all go out in the parking lot and pick together. Yep. And that's where most of that came from. You know, you go around those fiddlers' conventions, you see some guys standing out there in the parking lot playing, you walk up to them, they play the same tune for three or four hours. <laughs> they were rehearsing for a contest. Yeah. You know, because that thousand dollars for the you know winner of the banjo contest or the fiddle contest or whatever it was that was some money back in those days for you know right. guys for pickers and everything so they they were serious about their their music it wasn't a a thing any jamming around or getting together and playing all happened after after the contest was over right i remember the first time i met uh Tug taylor and mike longsworth and roger sprung and I think Harry West may have been in on the whole deal, too, was at Westgate in Asheville on Saturday night after the the little contest they had had over in the Civic Auditorium earlier. They had Westgate parking lot open themselves up, and these guys all went over there, and, and I wound up as first place I ever heard Curtis Birch play. Okay. He was uh, playing a dobro, and, and those guys I just mentioned, Tut and, and uh, Mike Longsworth and... Uh, Roger Sprung and all of them, I walked up to where there was a crowd, and those guys had Curtis surrounded, and he was just sitting there with a the guitar player doing some of the darndest stuff on a dobro I'd ever heard in my life. And I hadn't heard a lot at that point, you know, but uh, it, it just amazed me. He was 
couple of years older than me, not much, but my goodness, what a wonderful player he was. Yeah. And then I wound up getting to play with him when I was in the New Grass Revival years after that. He was the guitar player in that band while I was there. Right. As kind of a side point there, uh, you'd mentioned uh, Bascom Lamar Lunsford. Uh, it's kind of cool because you got to know some of the uh, some of those old timers like that, didn't you? Yeah, I, I got to meet them. With guys like that, you know, they were sort of at arm's length. I'd meet them and know who they were during the course of the event because they would always be very active in it, you know. Uh, something like that thing over there in Asheville, the two things that they had at the civic centers, those guys were all back in the dressing rooms. Anywhere there was any play and coming along, they were all the time milling about and meeting everybody and, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was part of the, the musical heritage from over there. It was it was a whole different thing than music is today. And, uh, you know, your comments you sent to me earlier, you were talking about what goes on today. It was a whole wor different world back then. And, I mean, I understand, like, bluegrass had been popular, rise by Bill Monroe in the mid-40s and come into its own as a music form into its own. But we're not talking about as nearly as much as that or as just the hand-me-down hillbilly music. Right. And it's what it's sort of, it's the nature of the social skill that bluegrass music has come to be today. It's the way music gets passed down through generations, you know. And like I said, in those late-night pickings after the contests and everything, where the tunes got shared from the folks who live in the Asheville area with the folks from down in the Charlotte area or the Statesville or Greensboro area or the Richmond area. You know, right? Anyhow, so you get to know uh, that's sort of what that was. It was it was a different thing then. Yeah, you got to know. Uh, is it Tommy Gerald? Oh yeah, yeah. Uncle Tommy. <laughs> yeah, he was great. He and my dad became great friends. Uh, my dad was uh, was an interesting and unique character, and uh, he and Tommy became great friends. And, yeah, uh, it was. Uh, he was a character. I, 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 I'll just leave it at that. He was truly a character. The one thing that I carried on from him that I carried into my music is I wrote a tune uh, that I, I wrote out of a, a tuning called C minor, and it's a pure C minor tuning where the first strings in a E flat, second strings in a C, third strings in a G, fourth strings in a C, and fifth strings in a G. And uh, it was the title cut to my first Rounder album. I called it 40 Years Late. But I had learned that tuning from Uncle Tommy at uh, Galax, I think sometime along about the time I was 15 or 16 years old. He showed me the tuning, and he used to play Clawhammer banjo, you know, the old Tommy stuff. Uh -huh. And I came home, in the next couple of weeks after that, I wound up writing that tune. And it was the first tune of any significance that I had ever written at, and when when yeah. Rounder asked me to record that first record for him, I uh, I dedicated the record to Snuffy Jenkins, and that was I, I called it Forty Years Late because I, I wrote in the liner notes that back then my favorite thing to have done would have been to drop back forty years and sit on the front porch and pick with Snuffy, you know. Right, I love that tune too. That's that's an awesome tune there, and well, that's. that's that's directly to you from Tommy Gerald. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's neat to know that he's the one that uh, showed you that. I, I think in your book, uh, which we're talking about, 
I'll be making references to your book. It's called What I Know About What I Know. Uh, I think in the book you just said you learned it at Galax one night. You didn't actually say Tommy did it, I don't think, but you might have. But that well, there, It was real weird. There were two fiddle players that, that dabbled around on the banjo a little bit, and Tommy was the one that actually showed me, sat down with me and explained the tuning to it. But another one I heard play a thump out an old tune and... I'm going to say it was like Cluck Old Hen or something like that, but uh, it was a guy named Buddy Pendleton, who was a uh, real good fiddle player from down uh, around Stewart, Virginia. And uh, he played a, a tune on the banjo in C minor as well, and I heard him that weekend. It was a couple of those guys that played in that old-timey way. I never was all that thrilled about it back in those days. I came to be an appreciator later on when... Uh, mainly when I heard a guy named Edwin Lacey who played a melodic claw hammer style banjo. And, 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 you know, there were those old banjo players. There was one guy named Will Keys, I remember, that I heard. He was a two-finger banjo player that played a whole lot like string bean played when he was with Bill Monroe. So right. there, were, there were odd styles around, you know, like that that I saw and was witness to, you know, when, when I was growing up because it was all different then i mean it was uh the the music hasn't hadn't developed a whole lot of celebrity you know you'd had a few stars in the whole thing like the acoustic string band music like bill monroe in the southeast as a result of you know being able to be on the grand Ole opry and be able to broadcast to a wide audience there and then you had the some of the bands that followed him like you know, the Flat and Scrubs band or the Stanley Brothers band. A lot of those guys, you know, had been members of his band right. when they came along. But at that point, nobody had really developed a celebrity or a degree of celebrity out there where it was beyond that homegrown music that I talked about that had been passed down from generation to generation and shared around late night campfires or gatherings, you know, square dances and such. Some of your early influences, you've talked about some of them already. Uh, who was maybe some more of your early influences? I, I know you've mentioned Don Reno before it taught you some things. Oh, yeah. I, I thought for, for years, I thought Don Reno hung the moon. Uh, yeah. I had I had never seen, you know, and, and it wasn't necessarily as a banjo player in, in his case, even though he, he did... I mean, he was so far advanced of anywhere that I was during that period of time that there's a lot of, of his music I just, you know, I, did, I, I didn't understand it because it wasn't something that was natural to me. But what got me about him and uh, all through the thing is I actually saw him on stage. And, you know, I often tell people that the worst thing that ever happened to Don Reno was the last 10 years that he played. Because a lot of people only saw him during that period of time. They didn't see what he was when he was with Red Smiley. I mean, the first country music show I ever saw was in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Homer Israel and Boomer Long took me down to see that. Okay. And it was on the show. We walked in the auditorium and Flat and Scrubs were doing the Martha White theme to open up their show. They opened the show. And then... Mother Maybelle Carter came out, and they played with her and did a short set. Then there was an intermission, and Bill Anderson, the country star, had a, a number one record out at that point called Still. And he was they were playing that on the charts. And 
So he comes on, starts right after the intermission, and then Reno and Smiley came on. And I found out later, I never could understand that. Here's a guy with a number one hit record, and he's not the one closing the show. (laughs) But I found out later on that all those country guys that knew Carlton and knew of Reno and Smiley would write in their contracts. They would not follow Don Reno and Red Smiley's show. Oh, really? It was such an act. And, I mean, Don not only had the thing about being an extremely innovative banjo player, but that thing that Snuffy Jenkins was, that comedian, when Don went into the chicken hot rod, you know, he would sneak off the stage and while and Red Smiley would do something, he and the rest of the band would play something, and Don would come back dressed up as chicken hot rod and start the routines, and then one by one the other members of the band would disappear and they'd get in their garb too, and uh, Red Smiley dressed in drag, he was pansy hot rod, <laughs> yeah. and then... Um, one of them was Jeff Dual Tater. That was uh, Mac McGahey, and John Palmer was Mutt High Pockets. And the four of them, it was like watching the Marx Brothers, and they had these routines built up. And I swear to God, and it was like Don explained to me one time. It's like taking your audience for a ride on a roller coaster. And 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 it, he programmed it out when he did his shows. His shows were all about establishing that link with an audience. And what it's, I found out later on with Monroe was, to a degree, you know, that that was the most important thing about being a live performer is the rapport you're building up with that audience. And it, it's where I learned to, you know, I love to play some of my tunes like 40 Years Late and Rural Retreat and some of those things. But when I get in front of an audience, they don't really mean anything to me. You know, the tune, the tune doesn't mean anything sort of at all. I just assumed if somebody hollers for Foggy Mountain Breakdown, it's what I'd as soon play that as I would to play one of my tunes. Because the the what you're playing, the music is just a vehicle for enhancing that interaction between the audience and the performer. You know, right? And and the tune really don't matter. You know, it, it dawned on me after playing Mule Skinner, Mule Skinner Blues, to open every show for four years running that I played in. And I never got tired of it. You know, and it was 10 years after I quit the band that I figured out why not. (laughs) You know, (laughs) in hindsight, and understanding that those tunes are just vehicles to express for for an emotional, you know, expressing that emotional moment that exists between the performer and the audience. And that was a, a wonderful thing to learn. And then when I started doing that, I also started translating that into making records what are you doing because uh, you know you mentioned some of my records out there the first one i did was called 40 years late and to me that record just jumps off the turntable at you Mm -hmm. and so i started trying to make every record that i made i I was all uh intrigued by richard or uh, not richard by eric clapton back in those days when he was doing the ocean boulevard stuff and the i shot the sheriffs and and all these, and every record he'd make out, he'd come up with this stuff with Derek and the Dominoes. Wonderful, wonderful sound. Then all of a sudden it was reggae music out there and something completely different. So that's sort of what attracted me into trying to make records like that, was to make each succeeding record be different from the previous one, you know? Yeah. Well, you've got some great and, records and, for sure. 
and and well, it's kind of neat, you know. Everything that that I ever recorded, I think, can still be purchased. So, yeah, that's kind of neat. Rounders got my stuff in their classic archive series out there, and uh, uh, some of the people who own my stuff now, uh, the Hay Holler stuff, have all got that available for folks. So kind of neat i just i'm working on one right now that i've made that's a different thing than anything that i've ever done before and i've got one piece of music that i'm sort of working on to finish it up that's based on a five note oriental scale that i learned and it's expressing the interaction between the fiddle and the banjo and that you know i often wondered i knew that bluegrass country music at large and the subset of bluegrass music was carried overseas by the occupation forces after the Second World War. And in Japan, I, I never could figure out why bluegrass became a very popular tune to the Japanese public. And I went over there one time, I was doing a trip, and my friend Yoshihiro Arita got me out and showed me the scale and, and showed me that, that there, some of their traditional music was played on shimizan and flute. And basically, the shimizan is that three-cornered instrument. You know, it plays with a real heavy pick, and it's got the boing, ding, boing, 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 boing uh-huh. sound like a banjo. Very staccato sound, and it, it blasts you, and it's gone. It doesn't have much sustain to it, you know, like that. And then the flute is an instrument of sustain, where you can actually hold out a sustained note. And I got scratching my head and thinking, well, hell, that's the same interaction as fiddle and banjo had in this Celtic descended southern music of the uh, of the southeast of the United States. Same thing with the fiddle and the banjo. Right. Banjo's got or banjo's got the staccato sound out there, and the fiddle's got the uh, sustain, where you can hold a note. So anyhow, I'm trying to work on that piece of music to get that ready to finish this other one because all I used on it on the record was a uh, a real good drummer and. Uh, drummer, a keyboard player, and a that could play the old Hammond B3 organ real well, and, and a bass player, very good bass player. So, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing that project when it's coming out. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do. I, uh, <laughs> it's, an interesting, it's an interesting shot because it's just, you know, I'm just selling banjo music and some of the songs I've written. And that's like, I made records for years, you know. <laughs> I spent a I can tell you what, I spent a lot of money making David Greer sound good. <laughs> I mean, David Greer sounding good like he should be recorded. Yeah. And some of those other guys. I was so lucky. So many really, really wonderful players agreed to play with me. And David is just one prime example of that. And when I could actually get him in the studio, there, there were portions of his contribution to that grounded-centered focused record. Well, I'm convinced as for the banjo music that I like, I don't know whether it was what David got from his dad. His dad was such a wonderful banjo player or what, but um, he he is very high on my list of favorite people to ever have picked with in my life. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's just a brilliant, brilliant talent. I would venture to say he probably knows more guitar than just about any flat picker going out there today. He's his own deal. Yeah. I mean, when you get into a realm like he is, it's, it's when you're getting into a place where maybe a Vassar Clements was 
or a Kenny Baker with his own sound out there, distinguishable sound, or in another world back in the day when of, of an Earl Scruggs, you know, to come along with that distinctive sound to themselves, and 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 you know, just it, it was like when you. I, one time I got Ken Irwin gave me this big box. I think it was something like a hundred and eighty-five reel-to-reel tapes of the country kernels that I wound up editing, editing down into five albums. I don't know what they ever did with that project, whether they ever released some of them or not. But it's like what to, to hear the way Clarence White developed and to hear the brilliant talent that he was that, that led to the players like Tony Rice and then on this way, you know? Right. And David, David's... David's just his own unique person out there. There's nobody else. I mean, it's a sound that nobody else can make that he makes on the guitar. And with his, you know, you, you'd ask on on some of this stuff. You your where you'd sent me these ants and everything. You uh, you talk about um, history rewriting itself and all that. The current bluegrass scene and some of those things right there. All of this stuff is sort of strange to me. Every once in a while, I get out and dabble in that realm a little bit. But it, it's so different today than it was in my day when I was growing up with this thing and, and seeing these unique people and then, you know, running into them. You'd ask about um, Monroe at one point, and um, what was it? Bill Monroe is a person employer. What, in your opinion, made him? Made Monroe such a musical genius. Yeah, I was I was interested in your uh, thinking on that. Well, what what is the nature of genius in the first place? It's an insight that that's a special insight that is derived from talent and aptitude and a dedicated work ethic of being able to do the same thing a hundred thousand times over and never get tired of it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I often told people back years ago that I'd only met a couple of consummate geniuses in bluegrass music, one of them being Bill Monroe and the other one being Bill Keith. And the difference in their genius was like the difference in daylight and dark. With Bill Keith, everything reduced itself to a formula, to a pattern, it had a number associated with it in one way or another. In Monroe's case, it was just the unfolding of organized musical sound. You know, you ask him what key, you start playing on a tune, you ask him what key is, and he'll slap a chord, you know, hold up his mandolin, play a chord on it, say that and right there. <laughs> he wouldn't tell you that even the name of the key you were in because it was just the unfolding of that sound to him. You know, I look at the, the the builders out there today. You've got banjo builders who know everything but the numbers, and they're absolutely wonderful. They're building the best banjos in the world right now, some of those guys out there. And and they are as different, too, as daylight and dark. You've got somebody, Steve Huber, out there. He can tell you the nth degree of everything's out there. With somebody like Frank Neat, he's going to pick up that piece of wood and knock on his hand and say, that's going to make a good resonator for you right there, you know? Yeah. How, how do you classify those geniuses, you know, yeah. like that? Because everybody develops when they have that intellect where they have the talent and they have the aptitude and everything. Then how much do they educate it? You know, with Monroe, he was educated as a youngster. The, 
the, the traveling preachers that taught the old shape note singing. And I'm convinced there was one guy who worked for his father up in Kentucky. Um, I think his name was Hubert Stringfield. But he worked either in one of the sawmills or one of the pony mines up there. And he was a classical mandolin player. Well, the technique that Monroe had of playing completely from the wrist, that tremolo being completely out of the wrist, that's classical technique right there. Yep. I heard him do a, a workshop one time out in uh, uh, Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, when we were out there playing. And uh, was it? No, it was Olympia, Washington, maybe at Evergreen State College or something like that. Anyhow, he did a workshop, and he was explaining how he breathes from his diaphragm when he was singing. I got back to Nashville, Tennessee, talking to my friend Kathy Chiavola about what I'd heard him say in that, and she said, everything he told you there is the, the technique they teach in college, you know, for classical singers. So he was educated. Some yeah. way or another, he was educated. Maybe not with the lessons that Bill Keith was or some of the guys later on, but... You know, their, their genius is, is a fascinating marvel to me. It's just, I, I don't know, I can't explain it. Yeah. What was it like taking direction from, from Monroe? I know in your book you mentioned one time you, y'all were going to do a Christmas song and he stopped <laughs> and told you uh, you weren't doing it right, you, just need, you needed to make it sound like Christmas. Yeah, play it so it <laughs> sounds like Christmas. That's and and as far as I can recollect, that's one of the few times he ever said anything to me about my play. He he never gave me much direction at all. And and Baker said he never you know he told me in his later years that he said Monroe never came to him. He thought it was an oddity that Monroe never came to him complaining about the banjo playing in the band. <laughs> you know? but, but I don't know what it was because I. I you know, at times, he was a very temperamental man. He was a very introverted person, and he was very temperamental. And he was emotionally driven at every juncture. So I don't know. And a lot of the, um, a lot of the turmoil that happened when I was there was just conflicts of personality more than it was any kind of a musical con- conflict right. that was out there. I came from another generation, another world than he did. And when I came back to work for him in 1977, you know, when I went to work for him in 1967, I was fresh out of high school and had never been anywhere to be out from under my father's thumb. My father had gone everywhere with me. So it it was, you know, dropped me off at the Clarkston Hotel in Nashville, Tennessee. That was a bit of an eye-opener <laughs> yeah. there. But when I came back in 77, I'd already been, you know, I went to school for a couple of years trying to dodge a draft. It didn't work. They got me anyhow. So I wound up going into military in 1969, got out in 71. After I got out, within six months, I'd gone to Nashville. Within a year, I was doing 18 sessions. Uh, Taylor had gotten me in on some of them where I was working for people like Leon Russell and, you know, big-time sessions down there. Then I went to work for the Newgrass Revival, after a, a, a deal there, and I'd been to Las Vegas working with the Harry James Phil Harris show out there. So when I went back to work for him in 77, I was a seasoned professional, and it was a professional of that day. I was 
a little bit on the wilder side in my younger days, and Monroe didn't care for that, and he made no bones about it. But, you know, I, I constantly told him, if you can find somebody that will do the job for you that I'm doing for the amount of money that you're paying me, hire them, tell me about it, and I'll be gone the next day. <laughs> but it never happened, you know. Yeah. I, I had to, I had to force the old whole issue to a head, and I wrote that in my book. I will not relive that for you tonight. That was one of the awfulest, awfulest things I ever did in my life. And when when it came time for me to make the Shine Hallelujah Shine record, we had made that first record for Hey Holler once again from the top, and uh, it was my understanding from that thing that it sold something in, in its brief stay out there on the teeth thing that it sold something like sixty five thousand units out there for him and he came back to me wanting a gospel album and i refused to do it until i'd made my peace with monroe and i went to ralph stanley's festival down here it's maybe 130 140 miles from where i live and blake williams held my hand all one afternoon until we could i could find a moment where there was nobody else around bill and when they finished up his show in the afternoon of the afternoon performances, everybody was going over to Carter's grave to have a little uh, ceremony that they would do down there every year for him. And Bill was the only one left in the back of the stage. And Blake told me that was going to be my time. So I went up and stood in the doorway. So when Monroe came to the doorway, you know, he couldn't get past me. And he just looked up at me, and the first thing he said to me was, What do you want? And I looked back at him and I said, Mr. Monroe, the way I left you, I'm, it was the awfulest way that I've ever conducted myself in my life. I'm ashamed of it. I've come here to ask you forgiveness and to issue my apologies for the way all that happened. And he just looked at me and he said, well, it's about time. <laughs> and after that, I accompanied him over to the little ceremony for Carter and everything. And from then until the end of his life, uh, I would go down and spend time with him and just sit around and watch him play any time that I could. You asked about his genius before. How much of a genius have you got to be to where you can sit on the porch of a morning and you can start a tremolo going with your right hand and just these little phrases and pieces of uh, melodies start popping out of that mandolin fingerboard. And if the sun comes out from behind a cloud or, or goes in behind a cloud, or the wind rustles through the trees, or a dog or a chicken runs across the yard, something comes out of that mandolin to let you know that through one of his sensory input devices, whether it be the eyes or ears or whatever, he was playing what he was seeing. How many people do you ever think there are in music that get to a place where they can play music without even the vehicle of a tune? That is incredible. That's, that's the nature of his genius right there. Talk some about Monroe's uh, strength. I know in your book, too, you related one time y'all were cleaning up the grounds at Bean Blossom, I think it was. and uh, Yeah. And you said there yeah, was... Yeah, you wrote that where he drugged me. We yeah. had to have a light post for over near the barn. This was the first year that they'd had it, and they were planning on a pretty big show, and they'd just been having little things, you know, 50, 75 people around for years. Well, he decides he wants to get a telephone pole from over in the... the woods where the uh later where the stage had been years before but they had abandoned that they wound up putting it back over there but he drags me over there or gets me to go over there with him to get that pole 
he wrestled an old light pole out of the ground, put me all the way, see, he got back about a third of the way, took the heavy end of it and got back about a third of the way into the pole where he was carrying most of the weight, put me all the way on the end on the backside. And he literally, for an eighth of a mile anyhow, an eighth to a quarter of a mile, drugged me through old barbed wire fences that was down in that bottom there that they put the road through, blackberries, everything else, <laughs> drugged me back over there. I got over there, tore the legs out of my britches oh, that I had on, and, and he was just laughing about it. <laughs> so at the end of the day, he gets you had mentioned something in there about him throwing that baseball at me. He sets me up. They had an old concrete block outhouse behind the barn out there. So he wants to throw a baseball. And my dumb self, I didn't have no more sense. I got a catcher's mitt, went out there, he stood me in front of that block outhouse and started throwing the ball at me. And my next-door neighbor, I mean, up here at Salem, we've got a uh, farm club team for the Pittsburgh or Philadelphia or somebody up here in Salem, but that's who they used to be for. My next-door neighbor actually uh, in high school went up and, and tried out for the team and made that farm club team up there. So I had caught a guy who could throw a ball pretty hard. Monroe started cutting down on me with that damn baseball, and the next thing, you know, about 10 or 15 minutes, they started coming at me. Finally, one come at me, and it took my left arm and pulled it up past my the side of my head and everything over back, and I just looked out. I said, Mr. Bill, it's, you know, I need to be able to play this weekend. You might ought to back off on them a little bit. Well, shoot, you might as well have waved a red flag in front of a bull. Because <laughs> the next one, he cut loose of it, and I just ducked it. I put my head to the side. It went right flying by my ear and everything, and I straight back up. Well, it ricocheted and hit me right in the back of the head and knocked me out. Oh, the only my. time I was ever knocked out in my adult life. <laughs> and I come to with him waving a baseball glove in my face, laying there. I was laying on the ground. Are you all right, boy? Are you all right? <laughs> but he, uh, Baker swears to me one time that the old man had a hog that weighed, a boar hog that weighed 350 pounds. And he had a creek running, and down the road came up beside the creek to his house, the creek on the other side of that road over there. And he had one of those old, things where it's, it's like a wire going across the creek with the slats of wood down to keep driftwood or something going through it. Anyhow, that hog got caught down there in a flood, and Baker swore to me that the old man went down there, wrapped his arms around that hog, and lifted it out of that creek. My goodness. Against, uh, against floodwater current. Wow. And it, it just, you know, he, he was amazingly strong, even... even uh, you know, up when he was, he, he had human will like nobody else I've ever known. Um, he, he was just absolutely amazing. Um, he had he had fallen and broken a hip. And I think, you know, when he was up in years real much. I went down not too awful long after that, or maybe a year after that. We'd gone down, and I used to do my business planning for a real estate company I owned an interest in. And we'd just go down there and check in at, at Goodlettsville out there and a motel, set up our computers to do business planning, and each morning I'd go out to Bill's house. Well, after they sold his farm down there, 
and the guy from the Opry bought it and gave him a life estate on it. I had gone down there and was helping rebuild a, a chicken house, build a little chicken coop for him one day. Do our business plan in the evening. I'd go out to his house in the morning, work on that little wiring the chickens in and all that, or getting the fencing put in. And he'd sit out there with a the concrete block up on its end and just fuss. He'd argue with me about the way that I was driving a nail if it didn't suit him. <laughs> well, he reared back saying something in that box or that block. It was up on his end. He was sitting on it. It flipped over backwards with him, and he hit on the ground right on his tailbone. This was on a Friday in the morning. Well, I never used to bother him on Saturday and Sunday when I'd be down there because that was always his opry time. He'd always have out-of-town guests coming in. I just left him alone to his designs on that. I'd get back up with him on Monday. Well, the, his caretaker called me up on Sunday morning and said, you've got to come out here to the farm. Bill's got some real problems. It turned over. He had literally bruised his tailbone when he fell over on that block. He got by Friday night and it hurt him a little bit. Saturday night, it hurt him a lot. Sunday, he was in some real pain because of it. So I went out there and checked on him and saw it was. I said, Bill, let's wait till tomorrow morning, and then we'll go back to the guy who repaired your broken hip. So we did that. Monday morning, we go in to see the guy there. They did x-rays on him and came back and told him he'd bruised his tailbone, that it was going to be about four to six weeks, but he'd be fine. And Bill said something about, he said, I need for you to be pulling for me right now. And the doctor didn't understand what he was talking about. And he said, Mr. Monroe, I don't understand it. He said, well, they've done sold off my farm and everything else, and, and I'm, I'm really down right now, and I just need for you to be pulling for me because I, I, I'm, I'm really low right now. Yeah. And that doctor looked at him and said, Mr. Monroe, and he reached around behind him, and he pulled down the x-rays of his hip when he broke it. And when he broke it, the pelvis had split completely apart. And the darn thing, I don't have any idea how it ever come back together. Right. But he said, Mr. Monroe, I've treated over 600 of these injuries in my career. He said, I've never seen anything like you. And he said, you're, here your pelvis is completely separated, and this ball socket or this ball joint will not go in there. I mean, it would. there's no way that it should have held. He said, we put you back together in three and a half weeks. You were up walking on a walker. In six weeks, you were on a cane. In eight weeks, you were walking unassisted. He said, I'm going to be writing in medical journals about you for the rest of my life. I have never seen anybody with the healing power you brought to them. And he was 80 years old then. Wow. He was over 80 when that happened. Is that what you meant? I know in the, the Radford University video series, you, you said Bill Monroe was the hardest man you'd ever known. Is that some of the ways you're talking about right there? Well, he was, you know, he was, he was unyieldingly, you know, when he made up his mind about something, there was no changing it. I mean, he was, he was, you didn't have to worry about his position on anything changing. He gave you warning of it. <laughs> that was it's just it. Like that, that old saying, you know, everybody laughs at him issuing the statement, that ain't no part of nothing, mm -hmm. or he ain't no part of nothing. 
and everybody laughs about it because of the double negatives in it and everything like laughs about it but they don't have a clue as to what he meant by that when he issued that statement about something or someone that means it wasn't worthy of another second of his mental time it was a waste of his life to even give it another thought and i saw him issue issue that statement to people that 15 minutes before he'd been laughing and joking with him once that statement come out about that person when they had walked away from us and he made that statement about him that person come back around he wouldn't have anything to do with him <laughs> that was it that was just the damn end of it yeah well what about uh do you do you care to talk about when he got mad at you that time and wouldn't speak to you for like a month or whatever it was Oh, he went, he went for 11 weeks. He went from the Bean Blossom Festival, about a week after the Bean Blossom Festival, he quit talking to me and didn't start talking to me again until Labor Day up at Rosine. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I'd go in a room, a dressing room, and ask him for a note to tend to. He'd strike me an A note on that mandolin and walk off from it. Because that's how I used to tend to him. I'd tend to the harmonic at the seventh fret on my fourth string with that A and note the A on the first string, and that's, you know... When I'd get in tune with that, I'd usually be in tune in G or B or the capos or anything else. But that's how I tune. But that's all he'd do is give me the note and walk away. He wouldn't speak to me. <laughs> and he so wouldn't. he finally come on the bus up at Rosine, and he said, I want the Bluegrass boys to go out and do 15, 20 minutes before they bring me on. And I was sitting at the table in the place where he played cards. I said, well, what do you want, 15 or 20? And he walked back up there in front of me and slammed his fist down on that desk, and he said, uh, boy, I've been so mad at you for the last couple of months, I couldn't even talk to you. And I said, well, that's kind of obvious. <laughs> I said, you want to fester on it some more, or you want to get it out on the table right now, what's going on here? So he rattled on that I had said something about his activities around town for him doing, which I couldn't remember. And through this whole 15 to 20-minute tirade that was going down there, he kept accusing me of, telling stuff that went on on the bus that wasn't nobody else's business and everything else. And I kept telling him, you know, I, I don't even think like that. I, I don't understand. Looked at me, he said, well, you must have been all drunk up or all doped up one. I said, well, I might have been, but I don't even think in those terms. So it finally comes, I, I say, at, at this point, all I can do is if I said something that was out of line anywhere, apologize for it, assure you that I will be on my toes and it will never get to happen again. Blah, 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 you know, and all of that. So he finally accepts the apology, as it were, and says, okay, we're, we're just going on now, and we'll put this all behind us, and we'll go on from here, and we'll be friends. Okay, fine. About a month, everything goes along all right, and we were coming back from Columbus, Ohio, caravanning with Jim and Jesse. They had been having some bus problems, and they wanted to, if their bus broke down, they wanted to be able to ride back to Nashville, leave their bus driver, you know, to get their bus on in in case it backed in, but they needed to get back to town. So we pulled in a little old truck stop restaurant over in Erlanger, Kentucky, and Jim and Jim McReynolds, or Jesse McReynolds, sat down in front of Bill, and they started talking, and I was a couple of people away on one side or the other. We had tables pulled up together. And Jesse got to talking about how he and Jim was some of their 
shenanigans that they used to pull. They was going to have to watch it because some of their band members were telling folks around town about what they'd been doing. Monroe said, pops out and says, yeah, we got one in our bunch like that too. So I just folded up my napkin, put it on my plate, and went out, paid my bill, and went out and sat down in the driver's seat. Monroe was the first one in the bus. I followed him up to his table. He grabs out his cards and starts dealing out his solitary hand. And I, I just looked at him and I said, I thought you said we was going to leave all that stuff in Rosine last month that we wasn't going to be hanging on to none of it. Well, you didn't have no business saying what you did. I said, I've done tried to apologize to you. I said, I've done, we've done, been through this before. But about that time, Kenny and Wayne, and I think Randy was in the band then, they come on the bus and they heard what was going on. They went to the back of the bus. Bill Aldridge starts the bus up and here we go down this interstate. And in a good 10 minutes, we're going at each other tooth and nail. And finally, he looks across the table. He's got him a hand of solitaire laid out there. He looks across the table at me, pulls his glasses down over the end of his nose and looks right at me. And he said, you know that Lester Flatt was the worst guitar player I ever had. <laughs> and I said, Monroe, what's Lester Flatt got to do with this? We're talking about this other thing. He said, well, we ain't getting nowhere with this other thing. I just thought I'd talk about guitar players for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's that's the nature of what he was. Yeah, I guess that could be and, real and frustrating. And the bottom line too. was, you know, he did so many wonderful things. It's like when anybody would ever come up to him and ask him who was his favorite guitar player or banjo player or fiddle player or anything like that. His stock answer was, "They were all good when they worked for me," and that's one thing that I thought was just absolutely wonderful. Of him, yeah. As he never played favorites, and 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 I, I worked there with Kenny Baker, and Kenny Baker got no concessions that anybody in the band didn't get. Hmm. If you did your job as well as Kenny Baker did his, you didn't have to put up with a whole lot of garbage either. Yeah, you know. So you know, he, he was just he was an interesting study. I mean, I I worked with some very very talented people. He and Leon Russell were the two. Two of the most talented people I worked with, and and actually a, a lady there in Nashville by the name of Kathy Kiavola. I, I think she's got a master's degree in classical opera and everything, but she's you know she's a, a vocal coach and everything else. But she, as far as just you know having the talent and the aptitude, I, I get all flustered. I'm an old man now and got my my time to be grouchy all I want to. And, and it dawned on me a while back, I've been going on this premise for years, that ever since the 50s and all the child, child psychology stuff came along, you know, most of the folks in this country have been raising their kids to, with the thing out there saying, I don't care what you do when you grow up, dear. We just want you to be happy. Mm -hmm. We just want for you to be happy. Enjoy your life. We're never going to check and see if you've got any aptitude or talent for whatever it is you think you want to do that makes you happy. We just want you to go, you know, to hell. Nowadays, all you got to do is sit in your seat and don't cause a ruckus. With this no child left behind thing, 12 years later after you start, you're going to have a high school diploma. That's a piece of paper that says you're qualified to do something. And then you go get you another four years of that, and you get you a little sheepskin to hang out on there, and, you know, that do the whole thing. And you can do it if you just show up and, and do, you know, the work. Yep. It's put out there, and sea work is enough to make it happen, just as long as you're happy. You know, I try to tell people down here in this little town I live in, we've got, hell, 
several million square feet of floor space down here that was the furniture factories and the clothing mills and stuff like that, sitting empty. Every one of our county administrators down here and everything else, every piece of paper that comes across their desk, they know exactly where to sign it. They know exactly where to fill in the blanks. They know exactly what to write there because they're consciously competent of that. They've been trained to do it. But now, you look at somebody who can think outside the box that could put those the, most of the, the, the machinery still in those factories that are empty down there, and the people who used to run that machinery are living in the neighborhoods collecting welfare right now. Yeah. <laughs> but who can think outside the box and figure out how to put those machines back to running? Yeah. You know, that's what talent and aptitude do. Do you still live in uh, Pulaski, Virginia? Yeah, okay. live in Pulaski County, Virginia. Oh, Pulaski. You know, it's, it's when, when, Brad, when you go on this thing, when I first saw Earl Scruggs play a banjo on TV, I stepped back and I said, I can do what that guy's doing. I was unconsciously incompetent. Well, after I got a banjo in my hands, after about a year or so, I got enough along the way making my little three-finger rolls and knowing where the chords are that I could walk up the street to Clay Ledford's house and I could accompany him when he was singing them old Hank Williams songs. I was becoming consciously incompetent. I was becoming aware at that point of some of the stuff that I couldn't do. So I start playing in those contests, and I go in the military, and I come out. And within a year and a half or two years, I'm being able to get those A-list sessions out there and doing some of those. I was becoming consciously competent. But then something happened and my wheel run off. And I stepped out into another place and I went to work for Bill Monroe. And after I'd been to work for him for about two years, I could hear him working on a tune in the next room playing that tune. And I could put my banjo on and walk into that room and play it right back to him. Because I had become unconsciously competent in that realm right there. Yeah. Those are the four stages of the development. You're only going to get to that fourth stage of development if you have talent and aptitude and you're willing to put in the work that it takes to develop it. Going from unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent to consciously competent to unconsciously competent to get to that place. And, you know, when you're 70-plus years old, you can sit around and think about stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you, Butch, um, in your video series you did for Radford University, you said uh, you made a comment, and I wanted to get your further thoughts on this. You made the comment there that that you couldn't play bluegrass. You never could play it. What did you mean by that? I can't. You know, when they started the genrefication of music back early in the last century, it was basically built on the, the genres were basically built on a rhythm that played. And I don't have the bluegrass is not the rhythm that Monroe played to is not a natural rhythm for me, you know, and I don't think it is for anybody. He had such a developed sense of it. And it was such a developed sense of the primal forms. It's like when you play in a three quarter time, they call it waltz time. If you play Blue Moon of Kentucky, it was a hard three quarter. Real hard three quarter. 
turn right around and play Kentucky Lawson and almost have a minuet feel to it. Yeah. But he knew those subtle differences, like when you were the, the, the rhythm of a march time that you would play during the first part of Under a Double Eagle and then go into that real strict two-four for the second part of it. You know, da 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 And he would do it, I mean, with the pick and everything, the rhythm that he had, you know. I never could do it. I could accompany it while it was alive, and I learned how to play with him very well. And I've got a couple of shows when Sonny Osborne stood on that stage in Eminence, Missouri, and said that I did the best job of playing that old man's music, any banjo player that ever worked with him. Yeah. I, I worked at it to do that. But by the same token, take him away, I could only accompany it. I can't do it. You're listening to Acoustic Music Talk with your host, Brad Apple. You know, I talk about in those videos uh, about uh, the bluegrass music of, of today being more a social skill than it is an art form. It's a social skill and a, an expression of ego. Yeah, I wanted because to get into that, you've too. you've lost the continuity of rhythm in it. You've lost the, the melodious lead lines in it. It's all just phrases and everything. It, it's like, uh, you know, when you listen to some of the classic jazz of the past, the Django Reinhardt and Stephen Grappelli, you'd have Stephen Grappelli playing, you know, a semblance of the melody the way it was, and then Django Reinhardt playing phrases that played around through the structure of that. And you had those two things to contrast. Nowadays, you know, how much music is there out there that when you hear an instrumental play, you actually walk down the street and start humming, you know, six, eight bars or measures of the thing? You know, you can remember, I can remember a phrase here and there, but as far as the, the wonderful continuity of the melody and the rhythm, I just don't see it. Yeah, I was wanting to ask you about your thoughts on the current bluegrass music scene. I know it's so much different now. Even in my lifetime, it's changed a lot. You know, the music I hear now well, is it's, almost it's become more of a, It's become a business now. Yeah. It's become a business. You know, that is, is your, your the degree of talent that you possess near as important to you as is the publicist you have? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they got wonderful young players coming along. I've seen that uh, young guy, Billy Strings, that's out there playing and everything. And I've seen the stuff, his beginnings, where he played with his father on some stuff and just some wonderful playing out there where he goes out to these festivals and plays with every band that's there, you know, and got his own act and got all these gets up with Dale McCurry and these other guys too, and just a marvelously talented guy. But is he gonna is he gonna stand the test of time? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? You know, is he gonna make those business decisions that will allow him a career in it? I mean, we get to see some people have busted their rear ends to get it in Marty Stewart and Ricky Skaggs out there who are, you know, getting the Hall of Fame recognition that they deserve for the careers that they've had. But I mean, for somebody to last like a long time like that it's it's really hard to, you know, not many acts can can make it over 10, 15 years in yeah. professional music before they kind of disappear. Yeah, bluegrass is you know, kind of... To be, when I started out, when, when I was starting out in the thing and finding out from Sonny Osborne and some of these guys talking about, you know, their goals that they were trying to do with their records they released, 
Back then, if you had a hit record, you could play off of it for 10 years. Nowadays, you can't even play off of it 10 months. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, these young guys come to town uh, like Dirk Smedley and people like that that I saw 20 years ago. This has been 20 years ago when I went back to Nashville down there and, and saw him working around the station in and even wound up working a, a few frat parties around Vanderbilt with him and everything. And at that point, it got, you know, if you had your first record out and you didn't have at least one hit on that first album out, go home. All right, you get a hit off that first one. When your second one comes out, you better get another one, maybe two off that next one. Or it's time to go home. Yep. Yeah, drop you. <laughs> and and the, whole, the whole thing's different. It's not necessarily as, you know, the, the sales and marketing of the product now seems to be almost as important as the degree of talent that it's selling. Yeah. If not more important than the talent that it's selling. That kind of leads so I don't know. You know, it's, it's a tough deal these days. Yeah. That kind of leads me, Butch. I was going to, I wanted your thoughts on this. Um, you know, as, as a lover of this kind of music, acoustic and bluegrass music, uh, why do you, why do you think it is that bluegrass has never got the especially the money that it should have made? You know, it it seemed like you know especially when what what they call country music now it used to be all all country music. You know, but kind of when country started going a different direction, it's almost like they were ashamed of bluegrass in a way. And bluegrass has never really made the money that it, in my opinion, it should be the most well paid music. You know. <laughs> So, but, you know, that's just my opinion. But why do you think it is that, that Bluegrass has never got the credit or money that it's that it really should have been due due to the, I mean, the enormous talent that's that it, that's in our music? Well, I, I, would, I would pick things to look at like the material. You know, <laughs> when you're talking about dead babies and heartbroken mamas and, and tear-jerking and everything else, the music, the lyrical content of the music, in most cases, doesn't make people feel good about themselves. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, yeah, when you get right down to it, yeah. Uh, uh, and and the other part of it, again, you've got you've got a lot of people who are you know wonderful, wonderful, wonderful pickers, but they that's what they are. They're pickers. They're not musicians. Yeah, you know, I could name. I, I can only name two banjo players, and there are so many wonderful ones, I'm not even going to get into that, but I can name two of them right now that I've heard that I would really like to play with because I would like to feel what it's like to play with them. I, if it's one thing to hear somebody. It's something else to be with somebody and be able to feel them when they're playing, to feel the rhythm that they've got. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I can't answer that question. Yeah. The the commercial potential on something, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, what was the commercial? But what would the commercial potential of Elvis Presley been without Tom Parker being there? You True. know, when you look at Roy Acuff, what he was able to do, that's the whole thing. You know, my whole big argument about calling this acoustic string band music bluegrass music, it, it, to me, bluegrass music's Bill Monroe. You know, yeah. I asked you the other day, was Flatten Scruggs a bluegrass band? Jimmy Martin a bluegrass band? Jim and Jesse? The Stanley Brothers? It's the last interview that I can remember Ralph Stanley doing for Jerry Paul, a little magazine that he had, 
Ralph Stanley says in there plainly, we never played bluegrass. We played mountain music. Jimmy Martin's first record for Decca, Mr. Good and Bluegrass or Mr. Good and Country? Which was it? Yeah. One of Flatten Scruggs' first records for Mercury, first album, The Banner Across the Top, Country Music. Until those bluegrass festivals came along, bluegrass music was the entire domain was Bill Monroe, period. And then when the bluegrass festivals started getting popular and musics that were playing, you know, other people playing variations and all these other deviations, and they had, it's like I asked a young fellow back in January, I was doing a PBS thing, a uh, money raiser for an a FM station up here in Roanoke, and I told that young man, I said, you're somewhere about 30 years old. I said, what would you be like, what would you be doing if right now you could do everything that Bill Monroe had done in his, been able to do in his life? If you could play every tune that he played, that you were just as prolific a composer as he was, everything else, what would be the first thing you'd be doing? And he looked at me right there. He said, what do I mean? I said, you would try to do something to distinguish your name so people wouldn't be saying, there's the leading exponent of Bill Monroe. Yeah. You'd be doing what Chris Thiele's done and go out and create your own deal out there. You know, it was just like those guys that Hazel Smith called the outlaws. They didn't come around the Grand Ole Opry. When one of the Grand Ole Opry performers took on the attitude of the outlaws and started wearing his blue jeans with his nudie suit jacket and, and a big cowboy hat on with the things out there and come in with bullshit across the marquee of his bus because <laughs> he's going to be like them outlaws was. And that marquee on that bus sort of didn't sit very well with Wilma Lee Cooper and a bunch of those other old-timers around there, and they go to Bud Wendell's office, and the Opry star was brought into the office and said if that marquee showed up in that parking lot again, he would no longer be on the Opry. That outlaw bunch, they didn't come into the Opry. They didn't invade the country music world. They made their own stuff, and they created their own audience, just like Bela Fleck. Wonderful, wonderful job of creating his own audience in a subset of jazz music out there. Yeah. You know, if you could do everything somebody in a particular genre does, the next thing you're going to be doing is looking how to set yourself apart in it. That's one thing I uh, hear. You know, I, I don't know what it's going to happen. I'll say the music now, you know, to me, the music's a, a communication skill. Yeah. It's the way some guy gets together you know, some guy from Japan gets together with some guy from England, some guy from Texas, some guy from Minnesota, some guy from New York under a tree out in Bean Blossom and sings them old songs. And when they're doing that, they go through the same kind of a spasm that uh, Christian people go through when they say they're sharing fellowship. Yep. That's the communication skill it is. And that's what's going to keep it out there in the public consciousness all the time. Now, whether it ever... If it can internally generate itself a star, it may reach some kind of media capacity out there. I don't know. But to me, it's going to have to generate a star internally. I'm not talking about somebody who comes and goes over and becomes popular in country music, pop music, and then comes back to its roots because that in itself almost has a demeaning connotation. If your roots were that good, why didn't you stay there in the first place? But if it internally, internally generates a star, maybe this guy Billy Strings is it out there. Molly Tuttle be it. Who knows? 
How many people out there are capable of being a star? You know, that's a whole different deal when you get into that. Right. When you get into the the celebrity that that creates that whole thing there, you know, look at the the demeanor. I mean, look at Monroe and how his entire life, how statuesque he was, the way he stood, the way he carried himself. You know. Yeah. It's work being a star. You know, I, when I saw Leon Russell, when I first was around him, I mean, he was the top grossing U.S. act, traveling rock and roll act in this country. And he ran from it. He ran from it. And that's why he went for a lot of years in his life, you know. Elton John came along at the end of his, his career, so to speak, in the, at least in the, in the sunset of it, if not the twilight of it. And got him in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And something you ought to do is go on YouTube out there and watch his acceptance speech where he talks about Elton John coming by and finding him laying in a ditch alongside the road of life and taking him out to those back out to those high places where he could play for the big audiences again. Yeah. It's hard being a star. And once you've got one there, it's you know, once you've become that star it's even harder maintaining it, especially for several decades. Yeah. I guess it's a tough thing. I guess Monroe went through as so did a lot of people. He went through a huge slump, like in the fifties, I guess when the rock and roll really started coming around. Oh yeah. Rock and roll just damn near put them all out of business Yeah, in the country music world. You know, as Ralph Rensler and, and Carlton Haney basically, Ralph Rensler reorganized him, and, and Carlton Haney created the venues for him to come back in those bluegrass festivals. <laughs> you, uh, Butch, I'd like you know, when he was, it's just like with Roy Acuff out there. How many people, Roy Acuff got bigger than the Grand Ole Opry. He quit the Grand Ole Opry for a couple of years. Yeah. He went to Hollywood and made movies. One of the proudest things he had in his Dressing room was a picture of him on Broadway, Roy Acuff and the Smoky Mountain Boys on at some Broadway theater, and their front act was Ronald Reagan. Oh wow! You know, and he came back at one time. I think he and Fred Rose actually owned the Grand Ole Opry. At one time, they found him sitting at the head of the board of directors of the National Life and Casualty Insurance Company. I know that. You talking about Carlton Haney? I asked you this the other night. I wondered if you'd talk about it again on here. One. <laughs> One thing I thought was funny in your book is you said Carlton had gathered all the performers at one festival up one time, and he had this this great idea about doing like two different. Uh, well, I'll just get you to tell it. <laughs> but Monroe, yeah, he was going to put together two troops of them, and you know, take all the major hitters out there: Monroe, the, the country gentlemen. I think the seldom seen were active at this point. Just, I believe it was in 1969 at Reedsville. And basically, Monroe at that point had gotten the Sullivans to go in with him down in uh, Alabama. They had a 10-day festival down there. Ralph had a 10-day festival over to his place, and Bill had the 10-day festival over Bean Blossom. But Carlton wanted to start up a circuit. And it would be, if you can imagine, imagine this circuit being like a clock. And you got one group of them start at 12 o'clock and got another group of them start at 6 o'clock. And with each of these venues that they're going to work around that clock, there are going to be two festivals every year. And all of the bands would get to play all of the festivals that way. So the one band goes from 12 to 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 to 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 
back up, and it's worked its whole series where the other one starts at six and works its way around back to five. And that way, every band has got to play all of them. And basically, a couple of the acts out there um, decided that Carlton was trying to take over the music. And the <laughs> idea just went, I, I think Monroe quit doing hardly any work for for Carlton after that point, And some of the others did too. But, you know, Carlton kept on with his shows and kept the thing going. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't like it was before before that time well i like the way it was funny the way you put it in your book you said you wondered if they would ever figure out why when burger king went in on one corner that mcdonald's went in across the street or something like that <laughs> yeah they, they don't understand that's that's the nature there are so many of us in this country right now all we've got to do is just get us itself and get get yourself in the place where the traffic is give yep. the public another option We'd like to thank Butch Robbins again for being on our show today. We'd like to invite you all back next week for another great episode of Acoustic Music Talk. We're going to be talking to mandolinist extraordinaire, Mr. Jimmy Goudreau, next week and talk about a history in this music. I mean, Jimmy has played with the Country Gentleman, Tony Rice Unit, Spectrum, uh, Chesapeake, just to name a few. And, uh, we're going to be talking to Jimmy next week on Acoustic Music Talk. So please join us again next week. Until then, be safe, and we'll see you again. Thank you for listening to Acoustic Music Talk. Join us again next week for another episode as we continue to explore the world of acoustic music.